Hello, this is Bill Chambers, and welcome to the Faster Podcast. My objective is to interview the most interesting people in the rowing world, and in the next 45 minutes, get insights and even discover how it is that they do what they do, what makes them unique and fascinating, their success mindset, and certainly what they do to go fast. This episode is brought to you by Bont Rowing. Now, I have a pair of Bont PBR1 shoes in my Felipe, and they are worth their weight in gold. I've been using them for the last 12 months in both training and racing, and I must say, I've never felt so comfortable or connected before. Whether you're an elite, masters, or just going out for a paddle, having the right fit is critical for your comfort and key in enabling the best connection and force transfer. Bont was able to make these shoes so comfortable because they've done more than 20,000 laser foot scans over the last 40 years. And in that 40 years, Bont has created shoes for winners of Olympic gold medals on the track and winners of the Tour de France. And now they've brought this knowledge and technology to rowing. Built for performance and comfort, the shoes I wear, the PBR1s, are Bont's ultimate rowing shoe. Now, let me tell you about the closure system. The BOA system is the same system used by top-end cycling shoes, and they used by the cyclists because it creates such a snug fit around your foot. So that equals comfort, and it also enables a really good fit to enable force transfer. I find them much easier to use than putting your shoes on with laces or even Velcro because the Velcro doesn't quite get that right fit. These shoes have been designed by rowers, it's clear. Designed by rowers for rowers, and you can really sense that as soon as you try them on. Now for me, like many rowers that use Bont rowing shoes, once you've tried them, it's incredibly hard to go back to using anything else. They're lighter, stiffer, more comfortable, and provide a feeling of connection that no other shoe provides. I can personally attest to this, because I use them every day. And now, my listeners, you can get 20% off any Bont rowing shoe that you purchase through bontrowing.com. Simply go to bontrowing.com and enter the code ISTVAN20. That's capital I, S-T-V-A-N, capital N, 20. That's bontrowing.com and use the code ISTVAN20 to get 20% off your Bont rowing shoe purchase. Most things have been done before. So even though things have changed, it's not that they've changed and they're brand new. Times at those fours road and the world best times that, that we actually held at the time there now were done by an under 21.4 in New Zealand that I had a little bit to do with five times in one year. You can hold the speed of your boat as you change direction that's the, probably the most important thing to do that. You know, the concept of polarisation and, and, and not one size fits all has been fairly prevalent now for a reasonable amount of time. Bigger emphasis on speed training than there was previously, which I think has also led towards an absolutely key and fundamental change in the ability for people to row fast.
My guest today is well known in the world of rowing. He has held posts as the head coach at the Victorian Institute of Sport, winning countless Kings Cup races, elite development and head coach, high performance director at Australian Rowing, as well as head coach for Australia and then New Zealand Rowing. He is perhaps best known as the coach of the awesome foursome from Australia, winning gold medals at both the 92 and 96 Olympic Games and coach of the outstanding men's pair of Bond and Murray to three consecutive gold medals, including a double gold in 2014 in the men's Coxless pair. And my guest today, as he just reminded me, has been coaching for 30 years and still learning. My guest today is Noel Donaldson. Welcome, Noel. Thank you, Bill. And it's uh, great to talk to you at a very sensible hour of the day. <laughs> what time is it for you now, mate? Just after five o'clock in the afternoon. So I've knocked off and, and um, I'm happily all yours until dinner time tonight. Did you have a busy day? Had a reasonably busy day. Um, uh, people would, around the world may or may not know that um, Melbourne or the city of Victoria, or the state of Victoria here, we've been inundated with uh, COVID-19 more than anywhere else in Australia. And we've been in lockdown and still in lockdown, but I've been fortunate enough to be able to have some high-performance rowers allowed under an exemption to uh, to be able to train three mornings a week at uh, our National Water Sports Centre. So that keeps me busy, um, certainly this morning, and I get home a bit after lunch, and then there's still another day's work to be done in the afternoon. So... Um, yeah, a reasonable day today, but uh, quite rewarding and a, and a nice day weather-wise. We've got spring here now, so something joyful to look through forward to through all the uh, the mire of COVID-19. Yeah, you've had a, a pretty tough experience the last couple of weeks that you and I have caught up on the phone. The, the lockdown seems pretty severe, mate. It's been reasonably prohibitive, and, and uh, yeah, I think most people have followed the rules. There's been a few... Um, Protesters here and there, you know, concerned uh, that our premier has uh, locked us down so heavily. But um, you know, we're all concerned for one another and welfare and all those things. But uh, there, there are things such as our economy and ability to get out and get on with life and enjoy yourselves as well too, which has been a bit of a challenge. Uh, certainly in recent times, we've got a couple more weeks of it uh, before it begins to start to sort of uh, ease a little bit. And so hopefully, uh, we're on the right end of the curve now. So what's been the big learning from this period in lockdown and, see, you know, COVID, I guess, Noel, from, from February onwards, you know, what you've been experiencing? What have, what have been your takeaways? I mean, the takeaways are it's, you could use the buzzwords and everything, talk about adaptability and flexibility and, and um, keeping yourself fluid to changes and what needs to happen. So I think that's actually been quite good. And, um, you know, remote training, certainly if you sort of put a sporting context to it and in, in rowing, uh, you'd be surprised how many ergometers there must be out there because certainly all of our development squads and numbers have been able to find one somewhere and, and being able to use it. And the same with wind trainers and watt bikes and every gym, every rowing gym is now empty of uh, its equipment because it's in people's homes and the like. So we've sort of shown a new way of being able to train and train well in a remote environment, which um, we, we've been spoiled being a country that has fair weather all year where, you know, you can row all year round. So you've, you've always heard the stories of the people from Scandinavia or other that are snowbound for X amount of time or 
you know, countries where people train on their own during the week and come together at weekends. You know, our geography hasn't allowed some of those sort of things there too. So it's allowing us the opportunity to see what others have been able to do for many years and put it into practice here and, and, and continue to keep your head up and your chin up and, and get on with the job. So from that point of view, it's been reasonably productive, but I'm, I'm sure we're all wearing a little thin of that adaptability at the moment. Yeah, and, and how much time you're spending on Zoom and, and Google Meet and Teams and all that? Yeah, that's right. And the coaches are obviously always checking in on the athletes and um, and being able to watch sessions and help them and guide them and that sort of thing as well too. But yeah, you, you, I don't think we want to live our lives completely like that. But certainly we've been we've done a good job, I think, um, in the period that we've had uh, this thus far. Yeah. Well, hopefully it finishes. Uh... Or at least the extreme nature of the lockdown finishes soon. I don't think we'll ever get rid of COVID, but we'll learn to adapt a, a little bit more around it. Well, mate, um, what we're here to talk about is, is your experience in coaching through the decades. As you reminded me, it's 30 years now, and you've had great success in building winning teams and crews over the years. And I thought it'd be nice to have a conversation with you to get your insights into how you know, your perception of how rowing has evolved through the years, and we'll break it up into decades to, to get some definition around it across a, a few different themes. So for the listener, Noel and I were talking before about, uh, well, three key themes, how rowing has evolved with technique, the approach to training and preparation, and equipment. And to get Noel's perspective through the decades, but Noel, I've got one, one more request from you from each decade, a funny memory or story. Now, I'm aware of some stories, but I'd, I'd rather they come from you than me, um, you know, like Aussie rules in the boat park before a final, etc. cetera. But, um, you know, where would you like to start, man? How would you like to kick it off? Well, sort of, I came up through the ages there of what happens on tour stays on tour too. So some of those funny stories, you know, are not meant to be told. But um, as as we're evolving into the modern world, and it actually is, those things aren't even meant to happen now. You see, so uh, so it's not a case of um, not being done or seen. They're just not meant to be done. So, um, but anyway, I'm I'm, I'm sure that. Uh, there will be some great memories, and we'll we'll eke a few of those out as we go. But look, I might start, Bill, with um, the technical side of it because it's number one on the the running sheet anyway. So I, I can go from there too. And what what I'd like to probably sort of get across is is the sort of the evolution of style. You know, people will use the word technique and style as they see fit and the like, uh, and including myself. So not pretending to be any expert in that sort of area there too, but I do remember the great Tor Nielsen and, you know, he's as legendary as anyone in the sport. Uh, and it was the FISA technical director for many years. And so he would be asked to present on areas such as the you know, evolution of technique and the like in his presentation, you know, he goes and he focuses in on some of the key styles that were known through the days of Adam Rosenberg and, and the like in terms of the, the really distinct styles of people pausing, of people really hurrying off the back turn and going slowly into the front turn. And people can always give examples of those sort of things. Well, the interesting thing is 
those styles have gone round and round again and they're now not referred to as those great legendary people who were we might have called implemented them so to speak and they're now they're now described by other people by the coach who might be sort of onto that particular thing there too so most things have been done before so even though things have changed it's not that they've changed and they're brand new but i will get to where i do think the sport is going technically and i don't think has been there before so some of those sort of things is is also an appraisal of technique being related to a country this country does this way and this country does that way and i think that's reasonably true and if you come up through a development program and you see your senior athletes rowing a particular way because a particular coach wants you to do it that way, then it's easy for you to sort of link into that particular style. You know, we talked about the Italian style, head down and really fast with the legs off the front turn. The Romanian women's style, fast hands away, slow up the slide. But whichever way you looked at it there, people then used to say, though, but when you raced, you couldn't see much different at 36, 37, 38 strokes. It all looked much the same anyway, and rowing is rowing. So sometimes people get a bit too caught up in it and they're appraising the low-intensity training as distinct from being able to appraise what actually happens when everyone is at race pace. And that's a long topic that we don't have time now to go through. But I think sort of through the, through the 90s, I, I would have thought, and what we tried to do is we tried to row really long. We tried to row really long and smoothly with the four. And so that was sort of one of the models that got looked at. But I think, you know, and that came off the back of Langvoigt's and other people there too. And I, and I do think that through the 90s, people did try to row with more poise and uh, really long strokes. And then that was probably sort of the, the makings of some of the more successful crews in that period of time. But if, if we think about how fast people rode in those times there too, and I said this to Mike Mackay, who I do a bit of coaching with at the moment there too, the times that those fours rode and the world best times that, that we actually held at the time there now were done by an under-21 four in New Zealand that I had a little bit to do with five times in one year. Amazing. 30 years. So with athletes, that are they better? Yes or no, but they're certainly like younger and nowhere near as experienced and the like too, but can row a boat as fast. And we'll eke out some of the reasons why that might be over the time. The the, the 2000s probably saw some of the, the, the concept of power, I think, becoming a really important thing associated with rowing. And we're beginning to measure it, of course, there too now, but you know, ergometer scores and if you didn't have a certain ergometer score then you probably couldn't row powerfully enough so to me sort of through the 2000s was about power and power application and through the the next decade probably from 2010 to 20 it's been the refinement of those and it's seen the changes you know it's seen Ian Wright be really successful in 2013 with the New Zealand Young Athletes 2016 the Swiss Four and then through the back end with the Australian people with what people would think is a bit of a pause and the way they do it. But you've, we've also seen towards the back end of the 2010 period, the application of rating in terms of what people are actually trying to do in terms of performance. And I, and I still regard that as being part of the, the overall technical model. The emphasis on length isn't as important. So you've seen sort of 
what was length and efficiency and fluency go to power to then go to athleticism and, 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 and rate and, and aggression and trying to get their power more effectively applied. And because you can monitor it now, where mm. you couldn't do it in times there too. So that's a very macro sort of view towards it. But I'm really happy if you ask me or want to tease out some of those sort of things. But I do think that that it has changed in 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 over the decades. And I think we are about to embark upon the most significant of the changes in the next few years as well too. And it, and it it's hard to articulate here now, but it's it's not rowing as we knew rowing in terms of hands, body, slide. It's, it's how do we efficiently move forward and move back and keep the boat moving in a, at a constant speed. And, and I think we're going to see some really good examples of that probably in the next 12 months. And then others are going to begin to copy and we're going to be able to see some changes to it as well too. So efficient power, but the ability to link power and to be able to get forward quickly and efficiently is really important. So gone are the days of holding the knees down. Um, gone are the days of controlling into the front turn. The days of, and people have talked for a while about being able to come in and ping off, but people doing it poorly would get a bad result. People doing it well would get a... Yeah, I think that's a, a, getting, that's, that, that's a big point, which I think we're, we're going to have to come, come to some point in this conversation because the application of power in a power sport but it's the timing of the application to ping off pinging off with timing rather than uh doing it poorly as you mentioned i just want to come back noel to that point of power in the in the 2000s and and who you thought was a, a key influencer there because we've had the the concept to ergometers since the late 80s um we've been able to measure power but you said it really came in a lot more with judgment on ergo scores in crew selection, et cetera. What do you think was maybe a catalyst there or an influence? Yeah, I think people always look to the top, you know, and the greatest coach that's ever lived, it's just not, no even debate, and he's just re retired, and that's the great Jürgen Grobler, who we all know it, we all respect it, and, and he's a wonderful man, and, and he's had such a great innings. But he had the athletes that could actually do it too. You know, he, he'd had obviously... You know, from the late 80s, he'd had Steve and Matt, but he was able to bring the new group through as well too. You know, Matt stayed in for a bit longer than Steve, obviously, but then along came, you know, Sibi and Triggs Hodge and Reed and all these guys that had had an enormous amount of power and he always found a way to win, you know. And so I think it became far more relevant, you know, and, and if you didn't actually have it, then you needed it, you know. And we saw some stronger women coming through the, the programs as well too and... and yeah, I mean, it's hard to articulate every single example. And I think if we sat down, we could probably be more refined with that. But I'm really confident that the world had gone to the need for it. The Dutch from the from that 96 winning eight and then onwards from there, gee, they produced some very powerful athletes. Um, the East Europeans have always been known for it as well too. And, and, and mind you, they haven't had a lot of success for a long period of time except for a bit here and there. Uh, but their women were strong. Their women were very strong and, and, and maintained some success under Yuta, you know, right through for a long period of time. So I think there's enough anecdotal evidence that would say the best people were also quite powerful. We saw lightweight rowers winning who were starting to get around the six-minute mark on ergometers in men's rowing and 
and, and under seven minutes in women's rowing. So I think there's enough evidence there to say that we, we could say that some of the more successful rowers were some of the people who were the strongest rowers as well. Excellent. All right, mate. So we've we've talked about the technique and we're seeing the evolution from length to with the fluidity, the introduction of power and then power application. Where do you see the, the technique today with the use of power and how would you do, describe the, 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 the fastest times? We're seeing Sverry Nielsen, the German 8, the Aussie 4, the Dutch Quad, all these crews coming together. What, what is more similar than dissimilar with their technique, which is producing these amazing times? Yeah, I, I, as I said, I think what's, what's become more important now, the parameters... Power is the number one parameter. Now, now, you've got to use it, of course. You've got to actually do that. Rate is now an important component in that. Mm -hmm. And therefore, length isn't as important. So it's hard to row really long and rate really high effectively. You know, So finding the balance between power, rate, and what is the right length is really important in a real macro biomechanical sense. But then what happens within the framework of that? What happens within the length of stroke that you actually row and the efficiency so that catch velocity can be really optimised, which is a really key component about boat speed. And I think most of the biomechanists would probably go down that line. If you can hold the speed of your boat as you change direction, that's the, probably the most important thing to do that. So power through the chain allows you to be able to... See, to take the boat with you, then you've got to get forward and be able to carry that power without stopping it so that you've got speed for the next stroke. And I think the people who have been able to analyse and work and interpret that, they're the ones that now they're going to take the sport into the new age. And so if you if you were too fast off the finish of the stroke, you can drag acceleration. If you if you perhaps pause too long or you, or, or, or you don't, or you, or you get underneath the stroke at the end of the stroke, you can see the boat not carrying its speed through the finish, but through good postural awareness and good carry of power through the finish and exiting the stroke and coming forward in harmony with the boat on the next stroke is where I see the big changes. So leaving the knees down and getting a big swing over and a big rock over and those sort of things there too, I think we'll see a lot less of that as we come forward. And the ability to carry the body weight and to not pitch the boat going forward and back is a really, really important component to being able to how to optimise the speed that you did through power that you derive and being able to carry that speed to the next stroke where you've got speed for the turnaround and then be able to turn around quickly and quietly and effectively and apply big power again and repeat the cycle. Um, and that's why we're going to start seeing eights, I think, that are going to probably take just a smidgen off 518. Um, we're going to see the greatest eights race in history at some stage in the next 12 months between the Germans and the Dutch. I've got no doubt about that whatsoever. Um, and I would have loved to see Jürgen playing in that field, um, but it could have been a bridge too far for the way in which the British eight row arose so powerfully but could they have then turned their power into the speed that these other boats have actually got as well? So I would have been loved to see Jürgen do another year and take these eights on because it's a very marquee event, but we won't get to see that there now too. But those other two, they showed it in Lintz and they've showed it in all the footage that we've seen 
from that point onwards too. So that's really exciting. Um, the Kiwi eight, women's eight, you know, how efficiently they rode and the ability for them to be able to show speed across the whole track. But the Australian women's eight last year by getting out in front of them and powering up the boat there, but not being able to quite get over the line towards the end there, that was really exciting. So what a way to finish the Lintz in the last World Championships we've seen with those two marquee eights. I think, Noel, that Lintz regatta also showed an amazing Dutch quad. Uh, but I'd, I'd also like to get your perspective on the technique displayed in the men's single, where there was one second covering the first four or five scullers crossing the line. Yeah. Um, and a huge height difference, and, and I think there's, a, there's at least a significant power difference between uh, the German and the, and the Danish sculler, uh, for, as, as measured on the ergometer, but, uh, and height difference as well. But um, any thoughts on, on that and their ability to, to transfer that power at the catch and the, the fast, light turnaround? Yeah, yeah. In 2018, when I was coaching Robbie Manson, we trained with uh, Ollie Ziedler in Munich. And as we know, you know, everyone knows his background from swimming and, and the great history in his family and the sport and, and the way forward. But he hadn't been long at it, obviously, in 2018 and was just learning. But the great advancement he made between 2018 and 19 with the power that he was he's able to produce, you know, and he's a wonderfully athletic man. He's tall and, and, as we know, very strong as well, too. And so, yeah, he, he, there's an example there of someone who rose reasonably tall in the boat, doesn't change their body weight much. Um, for a man his size, rates quite highly, you know. Certainly, you know, rates higher than what the other big men have actually rode for many, many moons. Um, Sverry Nelson, yeah, he showed, he's quite young, you know, too. I mean, you've got to remember that, you know, he... He, he looks a lot older than what he actually is. And so he doesn't have a lot of uh, miles on the clock either. And Thomas Polson's done a great job with him too in terms of developing his ability to be able to scull the boat well. But he rows strongly in the boat as well too. He uses his power well. And, and he, he'll keep getting better when he learns to be able to carry his power for longer during a race, you know. He had a wonderful World Cup campaign and he had a good World Championship but couldn't quite get over the line. He could be one to watch also if he can take what he's developing in terms of his early ability in a race to be able to take that on a little bit further and actually be able to sprint at the same time as well too. He he could be a bit more athletic with his overall movement. So yeah, you've raised some great points and some, some really good examples of the way in which people go about it. The women's single skull, you know, and one of my great mates, Mike Roger, coach uh, Emma Twig and and, and Emma just got outgunned by Sunita Puspure. And, of course, you know, the Irish program now with Antonio Giovanni, we've got to give him great credit for what the Irish are doing and their coaching staff are actually doing. They've taken their program forward in leaps and bounds as well. But Sunita, very experienced, very powerful rower as well. But she was going to win that rate if she, race if she was going to outrate Emma. And Emma threw down a really good challenge in the final and try to put a couple of pips more on, onto what she was actually doing, but hasn't done it enough to be able to be there in the end. Who knows now? Cause it's going to be two years on when they meet again, um, you know, both in, in the twilight of their careers, both athletes, but that will be a wonderful race to watch. But I think you're going to see, and Emma's very strong as well. You know, she holds a couple of world erg records as well. Uh, it, power and rating and the ability to deliver, 
uh, efficiently over time is going to see probably a winner in that event as well too. So I'm, I'm happy that what I'm seeing is probably what we're going to see in terms of if everyone can get healthy to Tokyo next year, some of the marquee races and what they're going to look like. Agreed, Noel. I think that's going to be really exciting. Looking forward to all the races, actually, especially the eight. Um, let's let's take a look at the approach to training and preparation, number two on our our themes today. Your thoughts there? Yeah, look, I, I think it's changed a little bit too. You know, um, in 1990, we were fortunate enough to have Professor Tao Kerner. Um, and, and, and there was some taintedness about Tao, obviously, because he came from the East German regime. And, you know, we don't have to talk too much about it, but we do know some of the history uh, of some of the success uh, of, of the Germans in the earlier days, 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, but he, he came to Australia having done some research in terms of the type of training that comprised two millimole, four millimole training. And, and what you needed to do. So the world had a really good understanding sort of through those 90s periods and through the work that Dick Tonks did in New Zealand from, you know, the background of Arthur Lydiard's training methodology and the like there of, you know, long, slow distance training, you know, sub two millimole training, you know, uh, good endurance training. And I think that got carried through for quite a reasonable period of time through the 90s and the 2000s. But you know, the concept of polarisation and, and, and not one size fits all has been fairly prevalent now for a reasonable amount of time. Um, and then we could have the debate about strength in terms of gym strength and for those endurance fiends who perhaps didn't necessarily believe in it to those who still did lots of long, slow distance training but also worked on, on power. Uh, at, at the same time. And as we know in rowing, that's a very difficult thing to try and do. It's a bit of an oxymoron to think that you, you can be big and strong and you can churn out miles at the same time. So coaches for many years and physiologists for many years have tried to work out what the balance in that actually is. But I, I think there's enough changes in the overall training these days um, with a far more polarised approach and, and a far bigger emphasis on speed training than there were, was previously, which I think has also led towards an absolutely key and fundamental change in the ability for people to row fast and sustain, sustain speed over time. Um, uh, I, there's a lot more measurement in training. There's a lot more battle paddling in training. There's a lot more uh, knowledge and adherence to boat speed in training versus training on heart rate, as an example. I think there's, a, there's enough around the world and no one's published the book that sort of says here's how you have to do it all but i i think that coaches and and physiologists have challenged themselves and have studied what others have been doing made up their own minds about what, what they want to try and do and again i don't think there's a one size fits all but i do think now that if you need to row faster you need to be able to row fast and i think people are being able to work out how to actually do that in a physiological sense as well as a uh, technical sense and a power sense. Now, do you think that, um, you know, you mentioned Professor Kerner and, and Arthur Lydiard and others and some successful coaches have followed that polarised approach. Is it a matter of coaches around the world uh, looking at what successful coaches are doing and then copying, in the crude sense of the, the word, uh, the approach and then building on it and trying to improve? 
yeah, I, I think there's a bit of that, but I do think that the leaders are actually making up their own minds as well too. Um, I, I think there's a lot more learning from other sports as well now. And we, we all say we used to try and do it, whatever, but I think there's a lot more evidence now of looking at what the what the performance parameters are in other sports and what, what correlation it might actually have to rowing. Um, so I, I think it's multifaceted, Bill. I don't think it's saying, well, the Germans do this and if we know that and we copy that program, then we'll go really well as well. I think you've got to know, if you don't know why people are doing it and if you don't know all the ins and outs about why something you're doing, you can never copy anything. Um, or, or if you do, it ends up being a poor copy. You, you yeah. have to take what you believe are the foundations about what someone does and have your own input into it so that you can execute your own programs the way in which you want to do it. You know, I, I don't think you can be successful thinking that you know what everyone else does because unless you work in the system, you don't actually know. And I've been fortunate enough to work now in two countries. And so I, I went to New Zealand thinking I knew what New Zealand did. It wasn't until I got there that I found out what they really do. You know? So so from that sort of point of view, um, and the world shares a lot more now because of social media. You can always find something out. Um, you know, there never was the internet. You know, there was never an email. You didn't get pirated scores about what people were doing. And all, all that's been pretty prevalent for a reasonable period of time. But I don't think you rely on that as your intel and your information about how to design your program and what to actually do. You need your own input and your own knowledge as well. So a couple of points on that with with regards to developing your training and preparation plan and the role of sports science that you've seen in the countries that you've led, Australia and New Zealand. And second part of that question would be the role of technology in providing visibility and transparency into what's going on with the athlete, like training peaks, Garmin, et cetera. So just on the sports science, what's, what, what's the role of the sports scientists there and, and looking also at you know, I know that uh, uh, I know that Drew Ginn is still a, an amazing cyclist. I know that uh, the the Kiwi pair did a fair bit of cycling, so they must have borrowed uh, some some ideas from different sports. Yeah, 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 definitely. And most of the time, uh, the science staff also have got a broad range knowledge of other sports as well, too. You know, they they aren't they most of the successful rowing. Scientists aren't necessarily only from a rowing background. There's plenty that, that that's their main sport, of course, um, and then it becomes their main sport. But there's plenty of them that have good wide experiences from other sports, so they bring that in there too. And as much as we've had our scientists for many many years, uh, because of the technology changes and the like, I, I, there are there are plenty of coaches who will be able to keep up and understand the technology. But there's no question that the experts know more about it than the coaches overall. You know, uh, it'd be nice to think we we knew all about it. And the like, and I think I've made some mistakes probably over the years by maybe thinking I did know it because I came through a day where you were the jack of all trades and and didn't think you were a master of none, but you probably were. But but you had some expertise. You studied a bit of science yourself. You know, you carried a lot more load. But these days, you do have people and many more people involved. You know, you were lucky to have one person as your main scientist, and that person did everything for you. And now most people can carry physiologists and biomechanists and on the odd occasion, skill acquisition people along with the medical staff and the like and your strength and conditioning staff. So most of the top programs 
have got a myriad of really, really good people. And if you want to work in those top countries program, you need to be good. Otherwise, they'll get someone else to do it. So there's a lot of capability now in the sports science staff associated with the major programs around the world. And that's probably not that new, but it certainly doesn't get, it hasn't got any worse. That's for sure for sure in the last few years. So with that knowledge, and you need that, coaches need to have that knowledge these days too because you can't keep up with the changes that are actually occurring in technology and in training and in training monitoring if you don't have capable staff providing it for you, Uh, certainly not at the top end. So Mm. I I think we're really lucky, you know, and that's a really exciting thing and the ability for the teams to work well together and so that for any data that you collect to be meaningful rather than just data collecting is, is part of the art of how to put all that together at the same time. So, yes, there's, there's a ton of data coming in and a, and a ton of utilisation of it there too. And I think that's really important where we can actually be able to monitor athletes and know what they're actually doing in terms of not only performance output but physical output to be able to know that they're training at the level you want them to do, but they're also being able to recover to the levels that you want to. So you get that balance right in terms of being able to push them pretty hard because I'm, I'm an absolute advocate that you have to train hard, you know, and, and, and I came through some days of success where people thought, how could you possibly done well um, doing the amount of training that we know that you've been doing? And, we got away with it. But when you look at the speeds we rode, we, we rode the speeds of what we trained at. You know, we probably could have rode faster if we had a trained harder, but we didn't know that at the time. So, so the sport's evolved enormously over the last few decades in terms of the need to be able to match the training of your opposition and the need to be able to do it better, to measure it, to monitor it, and to make really good decisions. So, Noel, with regards to, you know, the, just the training volumes and what was actually being done in the 90s. Can you give us an idea of how that contrasts with what they're doing today? Yeah, well, certainly the, 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 a few parameters changed. Although we had lots of uh, long ergs and, you know, you'd do 20K straight on an erg and these sort of things with a long, slow distance, and you might get up to 200 kilometres a week with maybe not so much bike riding, but the overall volume wasn't, and the, certainly the intensity of the work in which you actually did wasn't as much as what it was. And we worked always to a periodized plan, but you, your low weeks would come down and you might only do 100 kilometers, for example, um, uh, during a week. In 1991, the four, the longest row we ever had all year was a 16K row. Uh, and part that was a deliberate plan because we wanted to then train harder the following year. But when you look at it and you totaled it all up in terms of overall load, uh, in terms of what you've done, then it's not what they do today. And we also had people who worked and had jobs, um, had other things in their lives and therefore didn't have the time commitment. So it wasn't that we didn't want to or we probably would have liked to train harder. You just couldn't do that. It wasn't the thing that was done in those particular days. But as the years have rolled on and people have become pretty professional at it, and you train three times a day, it's very easy to get your distance up and your kilometres up. But there's also a lot of smart training done today too. So it's not all about quantity, you know. Quality is still an important aspect of it, even though at times you might question that when people are being smashed. But, um, yeah, the sessions, you you can plan 
what you want to do now and know that you can actually execute that without the barriers in the way. And so that's leading towards a lot more training being done. Centralised system, funded athletes and the like allows you to train more, allows you to recover reasonably well at the same time also. So uh, I think that's the sort of like the evolutionary change is as much to do with uh, life and environment as it is to do with uh, the knowledge that we actually have and, and the, the ability to uh, give the athletes more uh, overall load in their training. That's got to be a game changer, isn't it? The centralised funded athletes, meaning they don't have to run off to work and, and manage things and then come back. You can get that third session in, essentially, which would be very tough when you're working. That's right. And eating properly and, you know, the, and most of the good programs around the world, you know, kitchens and food, and it's provided for the athletes there immediately and the like. So, yeah, it, it's um, it, we tried to do those things well in the 1990s. We, uh, you know, Mike Mackay again was instrumental because he'd studied uh, as part of his university course, and he was doing a specialist unit in sports nutrition. And so we had a really periodized eating plan and the like. But you, I don't think that would have been too common around the world in those days. Um, it was more like the diet I'm on, you know, see food and eat it. You know, you were hungry and <laughs> rowers have always consumed a lot of food um, and you thought you're probably eating the right foods. But in, in essence, there's a lot more knowledge and a lot more availability to your sports dietitians and those sort of things these two as well. So that, that side of it, the balance and the recovery and the nutrition is, um, you know, as good as it's ever been as well. No, we look to, we've talked about technique, we've talked about training and preparation. When we look to equipment now, please share with us some of your thoughts over evolution through the decades. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. If you, if you look at a boat that was, um, you know, we thought it was state-of-the-art, you know, an impact of boat in 1990, and so it was yellow, you know, as they always are. It was carbon Kevlar, and, and uh, we had two-stay-type riggers, so that, and you think, well, what's actually changed? And you think, has it really changed all that much? But bit by bit by bit, I think we've been seeing some improvements, you know, and you know, full carbon boats have sort of been one one change, but they're, they're not that new now. They've been around for a while. But I do think there's a whole heap of small things that have been hard to sort of articulate in terms of a real performance gain at any particular time, but... If you add them all together in the end, I think they're beginning to add up as well too. So you go to wing riggers, you then go to carbon wing riggers, you now go to Felipe's Alliant rigger, you know, a back wing rigger. You go to you know, different type of gate structures. You go to um, shoe technology, you know, and there's sort of a myriad of people. For many years, we relied on sort of Adidas and Nike being the main suppliers and providers, and we're all jealous that, that Adidas did a deal with the Brits in 2000 and uh, oh, to that, up to 2012. But in the last sort of eight, 10 years, there's been individual manufacturers. Philippe have had their own shoe manufacturer and the like that have got on. And so we're seeing these changes, but we're seeing the ability not necessarily to measure the, the performance of the boat per se, but, but, the NK gates, the peach shock uh, gear, biomechanic system and the like, there's been lots of other ability to be able to measure sort of the output. So that's given people an opportunity then to look at the gearing of the boat as well too. Should we do this? Should we change the angle of the feet? Are we lifting too much? Are we flat? 
should we bring the span in out? How, what length oars? What type of spoon we row with? So there's been a myriad of things there too, and I think there's been enough ability then to measure it and to, to look and see what others have done over time and realise that if you do that and you use that length oar and you use that spoon and you pitch it this way and whatever, I think when you add up all the little one percenters, it's beginning to make a difference overall because the actual boat itself is not, not a huge difference necessarily to what it was. Slight differences in hull shapes. Uh, competition in the marketplace. You know, Felipe now clearly the number one boat builder in the world at the international market in terms of volume um, and the like. So it's put pressure on there in terms of you keeping up with that sort of what, what, what one boat company does, another's got to do to be able to get in the, the market, the marketing of them, the advertising of them and the likes, not unimportant. So all the small changes, they all add up to something in terms of performance at the same time. And I think, I, I, I do think, and I think the Allian rigor, I think that's going to be a really important one. I, I, I want to see what some, some crews can actually do using those because I do think... Why? Why, Mel? Why, why is it going to be so important, mate? This, I mean, it's beautiful to look at and I've seen some of the data that shows the speed difference versus their previous iteration. Yeah, I, I just think the ability to be able to absorb the power. You know, we talk power at the moment being a really, really important parameter, and I just think the nature of the construction of it, it can absorb the, the nature of the power and the forces on the boat better. That's my, you know, and I, I, I've read the data and everything as well too, and I've done no testing, so I have no knowledge about it. I, I just get a gut feeling, uh, and I do trust you know, the manufacturer, I trust Felipe enormously, you know, that the intelligence that they put into their construction and their changes that I'm certain they wouldn't go down that way to try and just sell more boats because they can do that anyway. So um, I, I do think there'll be something in the performance, certainly in the smaller boats where those small changes are more relevant. Whether it is in the bigger boats, I don't know. But, you know, I think you'll start to see some people using it. So, Noel, I've... I've uh looked at also the the skinny shafts we we know that Kleshnev has published uh, or documented tests on the speed differential due to wind resistance so skinny shaft is faster um, over 2000 meters because of the wind resistance we he's also done testing and and i think connie has as well with regards to square blades versus a very late feather due to the windbreak effect so what about clothing what about all the the elements of wind resistance on the boats, have you seen anything curious there? Yeah, well, I, I, it's a really hard thing to measure, I would imagine, but I do, I do put those in the one percenters. You know, there's, um, I'm not certain whether people have tried cones and people have tried various things. I'm not certain there's been much in that. Um, and so Valeri's done his testing with the skinnies, and I remember having a conversation with Darren Croker about that. They'd done some testing sort of, this is a while ago now though, and and they didn't, they weren't certain, you know, because, you know, for, for one thing that is advantageous, such as wind resistance, there might be other factors that sort of might have counteracted it. And they were not 100% certain at the time that it was an area that where they had to go to. But I remember Darren saying to me that, but if the market demands it, we will probably have to do it anyway. And before long, along come the arrows. So I must mm. admit, as much as I, I see Darren here and there, whatever, I've not actually asked him 
to say, now, Darren, you weren't going to and you did. Was that a marketing thing because you didn't want people to go and buy skinnies uh, and you didn't offer that? Or, or, you know, have you now been able to take your intelligence a step further on in terms of the, uh, the, the belief that that wind resistant is actually relevant? So th that's pro we'd probably have to accept the fact that there can be gains in that as well, too. Uh, just little gains that add up, like you said. Just little gains, yeah. And if four or eight people in a boat are wearing something or got their hair tied back or whatever, I don't know, Bill, necessarily, but I don't think it hurts. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong in believing that if you do those sort of things there. And, uh, you know, Jürgen raced, in, I think it was in 2000, with the Ailings rigger. Um, I remember that. Like a, like a wing type of design. Like an aerofoil. Like an aerofoil. And you think, would it have made any difference? And you go, well, why not? You know, like. Uh, it was, if you look at what the America's Cup's, you know, doing now, especially with their monohull, and I see what's going on down in Auckland with the, some of the boat uh, builders, huge impact of putting the, the crew below the deck or streamlining yep. them. And the Kiwis, how they got their guys on, on uh, bikes to do the cranks, but also below the waterline. Um, you look at what's, what's happening in cycling with the aero testing. I think there's probably still a lot, of, a lot that we're not looking at that we probably at least could, especially you remember the, the swimsuits that were banned uh, 20 years ago, the full body suit that Thorpey was using and others uh, to get some, some changes. I think Bont's putting out some interesting stuff with their shoes as well. They're borrowing heavily from their cycling technology. But we didn't talk much about uh, NK, uh, and you mentioned the Peach systems. Uh, what, are you, what are you seeing there with, that, can, that can aid the understanding for the coach and how to train with power, et cetera? Yeah, I, I, I think that's the main thing. Um, it's nice to think that uh, the, the other information you can get in angles and those sort of things there are, um, are, are important, but sometimes you, you just can't clone people and, and the like there too. But the ability to utilise power effectively and, and to be able to train and have feedback on power, I think is really, really important in these days. You know, cyclists have been doing it for years and years and years. And they, they know their wattages, you know, they know their power weight um, information. And, and we were pretty slow on the uptake because, you know, we, we just couldn't have an uh, SRM crank, you know, uh, until the, the technology came along. And then there was a debate whether you could race with your peach gear and the like there too now. But <clears throat> to be able to train on power and, and for both athletes and coaches to understand it, and the accountability to it, I think, is a really important game changer as well, too. And, um, you know, so that was a great innovation from NK to come up with the Empower Gate because it, it was simple and the like. And, and, you know, others are now trying to take that technology a step further in terms of its utilisation and developing software and the like that, that can improve it there, too. And, of course, most people now, I mean, there's commercial systems available and that people have been developing their own for quite a few years now to where you're getting direct feedback through to the coaching launch or in, in, in somewhere where you're of range to be able to receive feedback, which the principles of that aren't that old. You know, we were doing that through radio tel uh, telemetry 20 years ago as well too, but it, it's far more readily accessible now and you can put it on a phone or an iPad or, you know, and those sort of things there too. And so you, 
there's far more feedback. And of course, you've been able to download this information from Peach and other sort of implements. You know, years ago, you come in and analyze a session afterwards and then look at it and see who worked hard and who didn't work hard and those sort of things there too. But now you can actually see it stroke by stroke and you know, every member in the crew is accountable, accountable to themselves. They're accountable to their peers and their crewmates and the like. Uh, and, and I do think there's gains to be made there. There's, 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 you know, there's downsides to that as well too. Um, you know, some people row fast but don't pull big power. There'll always be someone there too and you've, you've got to be careful how you manage that and there's certainly the mental side of that or you know, and the managing it when you're fatigued and you can't produce as much power. And there's well, a That's a good indicator too though, isn't it, Noel? I mean, we know from cycling that when the power drops off, they, they stop the session often if they're doing high-intensity intervals. So they're really dialed into the power. And the cyclist can see the power. Are you an advocate of the, the rower seeing the power as well in the boat, in a, in a four or an eight? Yeah, look, I, I, I think that's still very individual. Uh, and, I, and I still struggle a little bit, you know, with where your vision is when you're looking at it because you, you can't put a great big television screen in the boat to see sort of various numbers. So, you, But the, uh, rowers for many years now through a, a stroke coach, whatever brand you might choose to use, have been able to see a small screen and, mm. and, and have a look at a, a key number, whether it be time or rating or speed, you know. They've, they've been able to train their eyes onto that there too. So it's a matter of training the eye onto a different screen and format and what are you looking at because most of the time these days you know you can self-select whether you want to look at your power or your length or your you know the angles you're rowing or you know your rating or you know time you, you certainly don't want to have all those things up because it's a bit too much information at the one particular time um but i i think it's important i think it's important that eventually over time athletes will learn that and there'll always be someone there that doesn't want to see it. They get distracted by it or doesn't feel they need to know it. But it, it hasn't been uncommon to see, you know, in, in a pair, you know, both rowers having, having a stroke coach at the same time. You know, why wouldn't one bit of information, why do you need to rely on someone telling someone else what to do when you can have a look at it yourself? So exactly. there's been a whole lot of innovations and practical utilisations of it for quite a period of time now. But because there's more more and better ways of capturing it it's far more prevalent today so if you've got power in let's say a pair or a four and it's we'll just make some assumptions they're using the nk it's coming through the speed coach they can see the power what are you asking the athlete to what cues are you asking them to focus on repower in the stroke yeah it's that's a really really good point because i think that varies by individual and, and for some people, it's it's about it, it's a it's a physical requirement. You know, you're, you're requiring more out of them, or you're requiring same power output for a longer period of time. So it becomes physical. What you what and, and certainly coaches don't demand these days, but it, it's you know you're challenging someone to say, look, we will perform better if you can show us your best and you can hold that power for a longer period of time. For other people, it's about the effectiveness of it. You know, it's when you get the blade down and in and it's more connected onto your legs and, you, and you're carrying your weight better there that the power will be a little bit higher because you're executing it well. So I don't think there's one simple solution. I think it's very much by individual and it's also by crew and it's by what you, 
intending to do. You know, it's not all about maximal power. You know, it's about effective power. It's about power for rate. It's it's about power for weight. You know, there's a whole range of things in there too that th that's very simple to work out over time when you know who your crew is. You know, um, whether you, whether people select on someone, oh, I want to put someone in because they're stronger. And I know the boat goes faster. That's fair enough if you actually do that. Uh, but once you get your crew selected and what like, it's then generally you're using that information to better the crew and the individuals within it, and, and not necessarily as a policing tool. Um, it, it's more as an instructional thing about if we can do this, we will go better. Exactly. Will it make the boat go faster? That's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's that's a premise. It's a cliche, isn't it? But it's still a premise all the time about why you're trying to do anything effectively. So now we've gone through technique, approach to training and prep, equipment, what goes on tour stays on tour, but um, any funny memories or stories that you could uh, share with the listeners? Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's lots of funny stories. Um, uh, there, there was one, uh, it's in the awesome, foursome book, um, it was in Amsterdam after having been beaten in uh, 1996. Um, there, a debate between Drew Ginn and Mike McKay about which way do fish swim uh, when they're hibernating? Do they swim north or do they swim south? You know, and, it, <laughs> and at the time, it became folklore about the importance of this particular topic. And to think that you could debate something like that in the who was right and who was wrong was so important at the time. And you go, how amazing is it that those sort of things there too, you know, can can be important at the time and can be folklore really. And you go, does it really matter? You know, and there would be so many things like that that sort of happened on tour that at the end of the day, you look back at them being something that was actually funny, but the reality too, they were only funny for the, in the eyes of the beholder. And so sometimes it's hard to tell sort of a funny story because people, what's funny for you isn't funny for someone else. But if you know the context around it, it can be. But I, I think those things are still really important today in terms of athletes enjoying the tour because most of the stuff we've talked about, and it's probably your probe for why to talk about fun, is it can be dull and boring, you know. If, if all of this is about training and hard work and and more power and these sort of things all the time, sometimes you can forget the human side of it. And I think that's really, really important that that is not lost in this side of it because, you know, technique, uh, training and, and equipment and all things, they're all dull and boring things in one sense, realistically, to people, you know, and people are the people who have got to execute those things and perform and having happy and contented people who are having a bit of fun on tour and those sort of things there, I think is still a really, really important uh, part of the recipe. And, and sometimes we forget about it, you know. Um, I agree. I agree, Noel. I think, you know, training is 99% probably of the time we spend together. And and some of the funniest experiences I've had have been on tour and been away with um, uh, the boys and girls. And, and they're good memories and they're things that you, you, you look forward to in the next camp or trip away. You never know what's going to be around the corner, but hopefully there are plenty more fun surprises to, um, to come for both of us. So a little bit yeah. more about you, Noel. Now, um, are you a coffee or a tea guy? I'm actually both, actually, but I'm a, I'm a 
Is this periodized uh, coffee and tea from Mike Mackay, or what is it? Well, well, well it is actually. <laughs> I, I, I need to sleep better, and so I, I, I used to drink coffee late at night, generally uh, in the mercantile rowing club tradition where you'd open a bottle of port wine and you'd throw away the, the cork because it wasn't required because if there was more than one person... Uh, it was easy to go through a bottle and you needed a few cups of coffee to keep you going. But <laughs> in more recent times, um, I'm, I'm an adherence to the nutritionist advice that after lunchtime, don't drink too many coffee. So that's where the tea tends to kick in. So coffee snobbing of the AM and teeing of the, uh, in, in the afternoon. But I, I'm, I'm a two coffee man and a two tea man probably a day. And what's your favourite drink? Uh, I used it used to be beer, but I'd have to say probably red wine would now have moved in front of beer. Really? When did that happen? During lockdown, mate? Or I did ask our uh, one of our psychologists sort of in, when we're talking about mental health, which is another really important thing with athletes today, um, and that the through lockdown, people are seemingly drinking more alcohol. And, and uh, I made a personal inquiry as to, you know, whether that, they thought that was a good or a bad thing, because I actually think it's a good thing. Uh, I've really actually enjoyed a couple of glasses of red here and there, um, and, and certainly is uh, currently number one. And I haven't been drinking a lot of beer, because it doesn't fit in the fridge, because you've got to put... You, Fill your fridge full of food these days. Oh, exactly, exactly. So, um, as as a coach of some pretty impressive crews, what's some of the favourite strength routines that you've liked to prescribe them? Strength. Strength, and the next question will be around the hardest workout. So, what what's a favourite strength routine you give the crews? Um, I I am a big fan of rowing specific of um, bungee training, so resistance training. So I, I would say that's in the strength slash strength endurance sort of activity. I'm, I'm a big fan of a whole range of different ways of being able to have sessions uh, like that. Uh, in the gym, uh, I, I like nothing more than someone executing a well-coordinated clean of really big proportions. So um yeah, I, I, they'd be my two favourites. Power clean. Uh, a power clean, yeah. A really good power clean. And how about a real beasting workout on the water? What's your what's the hardest or favourite that you give to the crew? Um, yeah, one that we uh, sort of invented in the um, sort of Gin Tompkins day, sort of late 90s and sort of carried on. And I, I know that... Ian Wright sort of did different formats of it in New Zealand uh, as well. Uh, of a, t- a tank emptier, that's one, you know, where, where you go for a hell of a long distance and time building the intensity of the rowing. So you start off at 18 and you finish at maximal till effectively you cannot move anymore. So that's, that's one, but you don't tend to do it that often. Um, an erg session, like an, a good old-fashioned hour erg Christmas present, is a good fun one. Uh, is that the one the other, where I saw a picture of a mop and a bucket and Eric Murray saying time for you to mop up? Uh, generally, yeah. Yeah, that would be pretty true, that one. Um, he's a heavy sweater anyway. He could do anything and you'd be mopping up after him. But 
I think <laughs> specific examples after the hour, I've had enough, you can deal with the rest of it. Um, and the other one would be things like the uh, 3,500-metre pieces and things like that, you know, at, at, at race pace. You know, I think they're... Um, uh, anything where you where, where there's duration to it and intensity, I think, is pretty tough on any athlete. What would be the pause between the 500 metres? Uh, 250 off, potentially. You know, maybe 500 off maximum, one minute off. Okay. Training or racing, Noel? You like going to the regatta or prefer the time training? Uh, racing. Favourite? Uh, I don't mind training, but I, I love racing because that's what it's all about. And what's what's your favourite race or regatta then? Uh, e- event or venue? Either, man. Um, every, I mean, that's a not. It's a question I people ask everybody, but I and it came up today. Uh, I was talking to my real estate agent because I've been buying and selling a house recently. Um, is your venue there in Switzerland, the Rotsa, you know. Um, yeah. he, he was doing some business with someone from who was working in Lucerne and, and I just had pictures immediately of that wonderful venue in summer. Um, as much as I love a few other places as well. And in terms of... Um, hit me with the question again, Bill. Favourite uh, race or regatta, like Henley or... Event. event. Um yeah. I do like Henley, but I must admit, I think a world championships, I I prefer a world championships over, because it's a pinnacle event over an Olympic Games. Really? Yep. It's, 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 and and to be specific, the pre-Olympic year, the the Olympic qualifying world championship regatta would be my favourite event. Because you get, Wonderful A finals, but you get brilliant B finals as well too. It's 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 brutal racing. It has been for about four Olympic cycles now. Yeah, and it was really close at lengths. That that highlights what you said there. Yeah, the fields are deeper. The people who miss out go to the Olympic Games. So you've got sort of more depth across the field. You've got lightweights there that you don't uh, non Olympic events. You don't have at at Olympic Games and the like. So it's a, it's a it's a more fun regatta um, for rowing purists. Yeah, talking about fun regattas and your, your love for the rot, so do you think you could fit in a game of AFL? Well, we have done that. Um, <laughs> we've had games of Frisbee and we've had games of... Uh, which is another story about Tor Nielsen, you know, when he, um, when he came, he thought the awesome foursome were a bunch of clowns and they weren't serious about their rowing. And if they got serious, they could go better because they would throw a Frisbee round at the Rotse and it would be going in between the boat racks and they would test their skills uh, kicking an Aussie rules football, which is sort of oval like a rugby uh, ball is in shape. And so if you don't kick it correctly, it can meander off and would hit boats and the like. And to be able to challenge yourself to kick boats around a a boat park was, uh, was always a bit of fun and, Certainly had people having a look at you. <laughs> I can imagine. Noel, do you prefer small boats or big boats? Which do you like and, and why? Um, I like both, Bill. Can I give that answer? Yeah, you um, can, mate. You've got to give a why. Um, I, I, I like the challenge of the single pair double because it's so few people and 
you've got to be damn good in it to do well in it. I, I love the challenge of that. I think athletes love that those challenges as well too, um, proving that you and you or one other are the very best. Um, I love the thrill of the of the big boat. Probably the eight a little bit over a quad, mainly because I've had a little bit more and I was a coxswain, so I coxed the eight. You know, so it's just the thrill of the biggest and the fastest boat and the challenge of getting it right because it's not that easy. Um, but I'm a bit of a I, – I am – although I mentioned the double before, I do believe that the, the most pure rowing you can have is in the double skull and the coxless four uh, because executing precision – is really important in those two boats, I think, over any other boat. So I've covered the field there pretty well, but um, I have my reasons, as you said, about the why for uh, all of those boats. That's excellent, mate. I think you uh, you gave me a, a message once that uh, FISA have a, a clear rule about a, a dead heat. So that was well done. Yep. Is there any rowing gear that you use as a coach or you'd recommend to other coaches? What what do you mean by gear, Billy? Yeah, you're, like so, coaching gear that you rely on, like today, that you would say, "Yep, absolutely, this is what I use," and I'd really recommend it to others. Because a lot of the listeners are look, you know, looking for for tips and inspiration from top coaches like yourself. Yeah, look, look, uh, I, I, I'm reasonably simple. I mean, you, it's not unimportant, certainly working in really high performance there, you know, your gear to maybe include your computer with you now in the boat and the like. But the more simplicity of it, I think it's really important to be well set up so you can coach well. You know, a good megaphone, um, a watch you're familiar with. Um, if you're on a bicycle, a bicycle that's the right dimension size, you've got your megaphone in the right position on it so you can use it well and communicate with it. You're not fumbling with things there too. And your motorboat, that it's well proportioned and set up for you. You know, you've got to spend time in it. You've got to be comfortable in it. You've got to be able to manoeuvre it well and be in the right place. And so, you know, you can look at what you're looking at properly and you can communicate to the crews really well also. And you're not in some slow old jalopy that can't keep up or, or washes every other crew off and the like there too. So I think all of those sort of things are, are, are not unimportant um, and be prepared for the weather as well. You know, if you, uh, <clears throat> and if you want to stay the time, you've got to look after yourself too. So you don't want to be getting wet, sick, cold, um, nor do you want to get sunstroke either there too. So I, I think coaches have got a, coaches are pretty hardy people, but I do think you need to be well set up and invest in having good equipment for you. I don't think it's the bells and whistles uh, as much as it is the simplicity and being able to, execute your coaching uh, practice really well as often as you can. So when you, when you look across all the, the successful rowers that you've, you've coached, but you've also seen, you know, a lot in the last 30 years, can I ask you for your observation of what you think they do consistently, their habits, their behaviours that help to define them as these serial high performers? You know, when you've looked at, you know, the pairs and, the, and, and all the boats that you've coached. In fact, what is it that stands out for the, about these athletes? What is it that they do that others don't necessarily do day in, day out that, and, and help their success? 
Hey, I think there's a few things, and it's by individual. And if you said, if you said about, if you gave about five different criteria, there'd be very few that had all five, um, but some would have three or four of a range. What I think are high performance criteria. One is they all have a great work ethic for training. So even if we, if you go back in history and did we get the training right? Did we do enough? Whatever. They certainly did what you wanted them to do, you know. In other words, you can't complain. The athletes themselves knew the value of extending themselves in training to the level of what you asked them to actually do. And I think that's really important, you know. If you've got to encourage someone to work harder in training, then then that's not the right sort of attitude. I think another really important thing is, you know, they will challenge themselves as much as you as the coach think you are challenging them, you know. And not, not, not only are they challenging themselves physically, they're trying to think and look for solutions to problems as well too. So it might be overcoming injury. It might be a drill that we haven't been doing that, that they should actually do. They're, they're not backward coming forward in making suggestions about things that they think that they need to do that could make them better. So, so they challenge themselves physically, but also about what are they missing that could actually be better that might make them be better. Uh, most of them are all pretty unique characters. Most of them are not, uh, what would you say? Um, uh, we have an expression here, goody two-shoes. You know, they're not, they don't do everything by the book, so to speak. You know, they make some mistakes, but they're good by far outweighs they're bad. And they challenge you. They challenge authority. They challenge what's right. They challenge what's, you know, what they're told to do because they want to get better. Uh, Right. So if you have an athlete that does everything by the book and does it all really well, then sometimes they might miss out on that little bit of spark to be able to be sometimes hard to deal with or, 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 or challenge the system or what. I think you need someone like that. You know, you don't want them challenging, but you know, you, you want them to be able to challenge themselves, you know, and look for new ways to do it. You know, if they're, if they're, if they're just complaining and all the time, I don't think that's the way to go about doing it. But if they do it for the right reasons, then I think that's a wonderful attribute. And certainly in all the good people I have, they have been prepared to do that and challenge one another as well too, you know. Um, um, sometimes they don't do it the right way, but you know, more often than not, they will and, and, and they will set a standard that their peers and their teammates need to come up to as well too. And I think... That's really important. If you're not prepared to do that, then if you're just going along for the ride, then I don't think you're going to be successful either. Exactly. So, Noel, I ask this of all my guests, uh, so I'll ask it of you as well. What, are, what is the book or books that you've gifted most to others and why? And perhaps a book that's really influenced you in your life. Um. I, I, I'm a bit of a collector of autobiographies on on the basis of they tell a story and, and, and I'm a huge believer in storytelling is a really important part of getting the message across. And, and these days I think that story needs to be told in, in, in somewhat of an abstract way as well there too. So um, I'm, I'm not certain necessarily that the biography of someone from my generation is necessarily where you need to go, but it could be the biography of someone who is quite contemporary now and, and has been starting to do things in, in, in different ways. So I th I'm, a, I'm a big advocate for that, but it's not 
one that I necessarily say that I've given to everybody. But I'm also then specific in recommending but books to certain people for certain reasons, you know, books on grit, uh, books on less is more, things like that that are coming onto the market these days uh, are things that I would identify for some developing coaches I think might be more specific than something else. Uh, and, and the other one is just a general good rowing book, you know, that tells a good story and, uh, and, and, and not an autobiography story, but is something that's that's it's it's got a bit of a, a a bit of everything in it, and you can point to a particular chapter or you know read something that which is relevant. And then the Kiwi Pair books are good, interesting read. The Awesome Forsman was a good, interesting read, giving insights into people and behaviours and those sort of things. So uh, I, I'm not a one size type book fits everything. I'm, I'm I'm someone who might recommend something for a specific purpose. And on that note, uh, what advice would you give to a smart, driven young person wanting to make a national team, wanting to make uh, a real dent in the rowing world? And what advice should they ignore? Um, yeah, that is a. The, 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 I think you're dead right with the ignore. Ignore. I'll start with that one first. Ignore someone that tells you that there's a shortcut. Yes. Ignore someone that tells you they've got a blueprint. You know, if you do it my way, this will be the way through. I think that's probably the most com compelling thing, you know. Um, look, look for people who have actually got, and it could be, um, it could be a, a peer, Equally or even more so important than a coach, so people who have been there and done that, but who can also give you the experience not to do it the way they did it, but can to share the experience what they and some of their colleagues have gone through as, as examples of being role modeling examples about what to actually try and do. So, and if, if I'm in that sort of ilk, I think I would try and be the same thing, not lecture them about I know how to actually do it, but look at what you believe that what they actually need to do and encourage them to seek information and knowledge and be prepared to challenge themselves for a long period of time, that there is no easy, fast way through no matter how talented you are. Mm. I was speaking to uh, a young lad the other day about one he wants to go do you know the the national thing and I said are you what are you going to do in addition to your rowing when you're doing three sessions a day and you're down in Gavarati what what else is going to fill your day and he was stumped I said because you've got to have something else that's going to inspire you learn cooking learn the language you know don't just sit around all day waiting to go out in the next session stimulate the brain and it's um I think it's a it's a long haul, isn't it, for them? It, it is, and it is a challenge. It's certainly a challenge in centralized systems, you know. And you know, we've covered off a fair bit bit of things, you know. And I've sort of indicated how important training is and how important training hard is. Well, it knocks you around. You get tired. You know, you need to rest. You know, we're also telling them how important rest is and nutrition. And when you start adding up the hours in the day, it's not hard to fill a lot of hours in the day with doing the important things in terms of working hard and recovering really well. So uh, 
and then to find the time for the other things there too. So in today's uh, environment, it is a challenge. But I th- think you are right too. And most of the good people who have got there have actually been able to do that one extra thing vocationally or work-wise or better themselves. So there's, there's lots of good examples out there of the people who have been and got really good by doing that extra thing in their lives as well too and not being just a rowing bum. Uh, and some of them can then actually start to pull back and not do the extra things is because they can then enjoy the ride. They can enjoy the training, enjoy the recovery while they can. Because it's only a short, although it's a long ride, it's also only a short part of their lives. So it's a real, it's a mixed conundrum to try and get all that right there too. And I think coaches are important. So are mental health and psychologists and we call them performance lifestyle coaches and the like there too all important in the overall life of an athlete and their well-being. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And finally, Noel, is there anything that I haven't asked you that perhaps I, we should have covered in the last hour or so? Um, well, I'm also mindful, Bill, that I'm very verbose. So I, I always have to be careful in this situation when asked that, I'll offer more for the sake of offering more, I think would be is that uh, if there's anything that we haven't covered, Bill, and there's an avenue through 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 um, getting back in contact with you and you to me and we can offer it back again, then I think that I'd prefer to do it that way and, and know what people want to hear rather than me um, expressing what I think people ought to hear because uh, they've probably heard too much of that already in the last hour or so. Yeah, I think that's it. Thank you for that, Noel. I think that's a good invitation to anyone uh, listening to the podcast just to send me an email. The details are in the in the show notes uh, for questions for, for maybe a future episode. I know, Noel, you and I have got something teed up that, that about high-performance sport and high-performance business, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get onto that in the in the coming weeks. But where can people find you online whilst you're in lockdown in Victoria? How do they reach out to your website, Twitter, Instagram, email? Um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm on my social media all day, but I do tend to probably prefer um, if it is a specific question by email. So I'm easy to get on my email, which is noel.donaldson. 55 at gmail.com. And, and so the 55 is a bit of a giveaway. <laughs> thank, you for, th- th- thank you for the hint there. I, I wouldn't have guessed. What I'll do is I'll put that in the show notes as well so people don't have to, uh, to uh, write it down whilst they're driving or, or commuting to work or sitting on the ergo. That's no excuse to stop uh, the ergo. Remember what Noel said, training hard is important as well. So I'll keep that in the notes. Noel, you've been super generous with your time, mate. I greatly appreciate it. The gratitude uh, to you to share your knowledge over 30 years and still learning of rowing and what you've seen and the insights that you've openly shared, especially for, for someone that's wanting to get into rowing. I think that this is a... There's some real nuggets to uh, to pick out and take with you, and then explore further. It's uh, it's not just said and done. Listening to that advice, it's exploring it in your context, and I think that you've done that magnificently and and very openly. So thank you again, my friend. No, it's a, it's a pleasure, Bill. And and, and it, in one sense, you know, I'm slowing down certainly from the international side of it. But the young people of today, I get grumpy with them every now and again. But they are 
wonderful people. Uh, the values uh, that they have are great. Uh, they they want to give back to um, to society and charity and whatever. I, I really admire that, and I see it across the world. And and um, they, they they're great people, and we have a great sport. And I think there's some are some really exciting opportunities ahead, as there are challenges and our viability in the Olympic Games and all of those sort of things as a sport uh, are, are big issues. But outside of those big issues, it's a great sport and there's some great opportunities for some great young people. So uh, I, I'm hoping I can survive a bit longer to watch it continue to unfold. Thank you, Noel. Join me next time where I'll be talking with one of the rowing world's most interesting people. And if you like this episode, you can subscribe so you never miss an episode in the future. Oh, and please, if you like it, leave us a five-star review. That really helps us out. You can find out more about our unique training system and courses by visiting whchambers.com.